From the Podcast Network at Family Life, this is Brian Goins, host of Married with Benefits, where we're committed to helping you love the one you're with and discover the real benefits of saying, I do. Well, welcome back to season three of Married with Benefits, where we're going to help you rediscover the benefits of saying I do. And this season, we are tackling some pretty intense questions, questions every couple is asking about sexual intimacy. We're not just saying about sex because we think people tend to think of that as just how-to and technique. But really what we're saying is that great sex is a byproduct of great intimacy. Really what we're after is how do we become more connected as a couple, especially as it relates to intimacy and to uh, physical intimacy. And I'm back with our co-host, Harvard-trained researcher, author Shanti Feldhahn, who recently co-wrote the book, Secrets of Sex and Marriage. I want to know those secrets. Yeah, we all do, right? Yeah, That's absolutely. the reason. Yes. And you have done so much research in your life. You have become a master question asker. <laughs> it's because I talk to so many people. I am hearing all those questions out there. Please help. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I loved one of the questions that you asked for this book, which was you asked everybody, what's the one question you would have for a sex therapist? And I'm super curious as to, <laughs> as to what people would say. What's their, what's their number one question if they could talk to a sex therapist? At the very beginning of this process, uh, yes. When we asked that question, it was pretty overwhelming, actually. The top answer by far was basically this kind of heart cry of people saying, why isn't my spouse as interested in this as I am? Why, Why aren't they interested? Or the converse of that is why am I not as interested as my spouse? Yeah. Kind of that sense of feeling a bit of pressure. Right. Because the assumption is, I mean, when we got married, that what my spouse is going to think exactly like I think about Of sex. course. Yeah, Absolutely. why wouldn't they? We're in love. Yes. So they would obviously want to think about it as much as I do or like I like it or whatever. Like we said in the last episode, it's all about those expectations. Yeah. It's all about those assumptions. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and as we said, in order to answer that question, because it is asked of a sex therapist, it would make sense for us. Us to bring in a talk sex about therapist. yeah this with a sex yeah therapist. we might as well ask one and we've got one in the studio with us right now one that I'm happy to present Dr. Seitzma who is a sex therapist or as I like to say a sexpert he's one of our sexperts <laughs> that we're going to be asking I feel like you're that way too Shanta you have uh, become no. that no you have you've written a book on it if you've written a book on the secrets of sex and marriage you're a sexpert in my uh, book yeah let's just say how often as we were in meetings with Mike for three years researching this. I am not because Mike can embarrass me just by like (laughs) using anatomically correct terms. Right. And so, yeah. Well, let's just say he's forgotten more about the subject of sex than we probably will know. Exactly. And and when I look at this guy's resume, and we've had him on before. Yes. And we heard from him last time for a few minutes. That's right. But I don't think I've ever really let people understand exactly what his resume is. Let's do that because I would love to explain actually how we connected up with him. Yeah. Dr. Mike has been one of our main advisors on this topic for 18 years as we've been doing this research. And, you know, we've we've talked about this topic before. We've heard about it in several of the other studies. And he would be the one that I would call and say, I'm seeing this like 127 times. What does this mean? So he was your phone a friend. He was a phone a friend. Exactly. When you needed an answer, like those old game shows, he was your phone a friend. Exactly. And just he's a, a pastor actually by inclination, vocation as well. And so just has this incredible depth of experience on this. 
And so when Jeff and I felt like, you know, we really need to tackle this topic. We had tackled the other big issue in marriage that causes arguments, which is money. And we're like, okay, this needs to happen. We felt like the Lord was leading us this way, but no, like we could do damage on this topic Mm -hmm. if we didn't make sure it was completely accurate. So that is where we connected up with Dr. Mike to do this research project and write this book together. And Dr. Mike, you have a lot more letters after your name than most of us will ever come close (laughs) to. You know, when I think about it, it's like you have a Ph.D. from the University of Georgia. You have an LPC license. Professional counselor. There we go. I can't even say that. You know, you have a CST, a certified sex therapist, a CPCS. Certified Professional Counseling Supervisor, you founded Sexual Wholeness, which helps train, mentor, and equip other sex therapists. So you're like the coach of other sex therapists. At this point in my career, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so you have got an incredible experience. Not only that, as Shanti said, you were ordained as a pastor in the Wesleyan Church. Correct. Technically, I am appointed by the Wesleyan Church as pastor to Building Intimate Marriages, which is the practice where I see people. Yeah. And you do see people all the time. About 20, 22 couples a week yeah. for couples therapy, for sex therapy, for whatever pain, desire, hope is bringing them in to see me, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing is, I've actually known people who in years past have actually gone through this mm-hmm. with Dr. Mike. And the reality is this topic is such a big deal and there's not that many people who really specialize in this area. And it is Mm life-giving. Yeah, we keep training more and more. So there's an increasing group of really skilled and well-trained therapists across the country that can work in this. But you're right, there's still significant pockets of area where there's not somebody that, that you can trust to deal with it. But for me, it's the ability to be a part of their discipleship and their growth of watching people reach a point that they realize, oh, wait, this is about me, and I need to either make a decision to grow up and be more Christ-like, or I can continue to sit here and blame my spouse and stay angry and contemptuous and stuck. And I love those discipleship transformation moments. And so that's why I do it is is I watch people make the choice to be more Christ-like, to go another step in their spiritual, emotional, relational development. Mm-hmm. And being a part of that, it's such a rich reward and exciting. Right. Yeah, and I, I like how you say the word journey. I think our friend Julie Slattery, she likes to say that <laughs> yeah. we're all on this journey of sexuality. And, right. and it really is a sanctification process. And it's like none of us have arrived on our wedding day to be these, you know, these experienced sexual beings um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that that all of a sudden that just happens, that part of really growing up, as you said, is how do I become more Christ-like in the bedroom? Yeah, and we'll talk more about that in a later podcast, I know. Yes, we will. I really think that's what God's designed it for. Mm -hmm. So So we have a sex therapist right here, and we have the number one question. Yes, we do. (laughs) And this question of why isn't my spouse as interested as I am, or conversely, why am I not as interested— What we have seen as a simplistic thought is that people think if my spouse doesn't seem as interested as I am or if I'm not as interested, quote unquote, there's only one answer. 
like the assumption is that means that somebody just has a higher sex drive mm. and somebody has a lower sex drive. And that kind of pits the two people against each other because that's not necessarily always something you can really change. And instead, as we sort of dove into what's underneath the surface of some of these issues in our, in our life in this area, we found multiple reasons that go far beyond what somebody's kind of libido or sex drive is that we don't know are running underneath the surface. And in this episode today, we're going to be talking about one of the big ones, one of the big surprising ones, because it actually turns out that there are multiple types of desire. Now, in another episode, we're going to be talking about the fact that there are different levels Mm -hmm. of desire, but that's not nearly as big of an issue as people think it is. So in this episode, we're going to dive into these different types of desire. So Mm -hmm. Dr. Mike. And have you heard this question a lot when you you have people in front of you? Uh, It's a major reason people come in for therapy, and and as Shanti said, it's a a big question when I'm doing workshops, seminars that that couples are asking. As we get into desire, I would like to make a bit of a caveat. Desire is one of those highly complex issues, and we really do not, by meaning we, sexologists in the field, those of us who study it, and sexual desire discrepancy was a topic of my dissertation over 20 years ago. So I've been studying this particular question for you know the length of my sex therapy professional career. And we still really do not understand it. Uh, we, <laughs> That's not encouraging, Dr. Mike. <laughs> like, it's been 20 years. We still don't know what we're we talking about. <laughs> you know, we don't understand intensity of desire, why mm. some people seem to have very high desire and why some people seem to have very low desire. We've got lots of theories and lots of ideas. But when it comes down to it, we really don't understand it well. We've spent billions of dollars trying to find medications that can change somebody's desire, decrease it or increase it. And Can we get any of those medications? Is there, <laughs> are there any of those out there? If, if they, Not saying that I might need it, but I might want to give it to someone is what I'm saying. You know, if they reliably work for everybody, that'd be great and you'd know about them. Right. Um, there are some that work for some people in some circumstances, and that reflects how complex it is. There's so so many things that are playing into the intensity of desire that it's really tough to figure it out. We told the story in the book of an individual who sat down across from me, supposedly for a marketing call to meet me because he was going to send clients to me. And in the first five minutes, he said, well, the reality of it is I'm here because I want to know there's got to be some kind of a cream that we can use um, <laughs> that would help my wife want me more. And I think that's generally what we're looking for is that one quick solution that will change somebody's desire. I want my spouse's desire lower because, wow, I just can't manage it and there's something wrong. It's too high. Um, Or I want my spouse's desire higher. It seems way too low. Or I want mine lower or higher. And we we don't know how to do that, nor do we know direction real well. Mm. And people are sexually directed to their they're what we would call arousal template is very different from person to person. And we have not figured out how to shift what somebody is attracted to. So we don't understand intensity or direction of desire. And if I could just translate, it's like we don't understand why someone has a certain like level, level. A, a libido mm-hmm. or what turns me on. Correct. I mean, that's really what you're saying is that we don't get those two things. We have lots of theories and mm-hmm. some of the theories make a lot of sense. But no, when it comes down to it, we don't understand yeah. it. 
And so we know some of these things we don't know. However, there is something that we do know. There we go. Which is that there is a big assumption out there that many people have, I sure had, that is totally wrong. That we do know that this is inaccurate. And that's the idea that all of us have in our minds about this one way is just the way desire works. And it's kind of what you see in Hollywood. It's what you see on television, what you read about in books where you have the the boy and the girl and they look at each other and there's just a spark and they start kissing and pretty soon the clothes are off and they're in bed. And they both have this equal like, let's just go for it. And that is actually one type of desire, but it's not the only one. And so I am hoping that Dr. Mike will unpack for us the fact that actually there's a whole other way that this works that is just as legitimate. It's just different. Correct. Yeah. So the first one you're talking about is kind of the stereotypical standard sexual drive, sexual um, desire, and we call it an initiating desire. There are some that use slightly different labels for it in the the sex therapy field, but I really like the the label of an initiating desire because it reflects that, uh, well, we use the example in the book of the car is in drive. And when my car is in drive, if I don't have the foot on the accelerator, it's still going to be creeping forward. You know, it has this this energy, this draw to be moving towards something. And that's kind of the initiating type of a sexual desire. It's prompted by several different things that are going on in our bodies and in the brain. And uh, it prompts us to think about sex and prompts us to begin to pursue sex and and uh, one wife said, you know, I was uh, talking to my husband and, and realized that he has thought about me eight times naked before <laughs> lunchtime. She's like, seriously? <laughs> you know, I'm probably still half asleep in bed and, and he's still fantasizing about me. That's that initiating kind of a, of a desire that we do see often stereotyped. But that's not the only type of desire that we, we see in the field. The second type of desire we, we call receptive desire. The initiating desire, it's a little more complex than this, but where we're thinking about sex or we have a desire for sex and then we begin to move forward and pursue it and that prompts us to have experiences that cause arousal. Mm. Sometimes the arousals happen a little bit earlier than that, but that's kind of how it, it works. With the receptive desire, that is kind of flipped. With receptive desire, they might not have thought about sex. They might not have been thinking, yes, I want to do this. It's more like the car is in neutral. And it takes an exterior force or it takes something else happening to get it to drop and to drive and to begin to move forward. So the parking brake's not on. They're not resistant. They're, it's just, oh, wow, sex. Yeah. I haven't thought about <laughs> that in a few days. Which to someone with initiating done. desire could be really frustrating. And this is where I want to just mention, and I want you to keep going on explaining receptive desire. But here's the main issue for people listening is to recognize that in general, it is perplexing to the person with initiating desire, and they think there's something wrong Mm -hmm. with their spouse. And the person with receptive desire who doesn't know that this even exists Mm -hmm. as a thing, 
they think that there's something wrong, too. The prominent cultural message is that the initiating desire is how normal desire is supposed to work. Exactly. And so for somebody who has a receptive desire, they don't hear other people talking that their type of desire is typical. It's normal. It actually happens in a huge percentage of the population. But when nobody's talking about it, you feel like... There's something broken. There's something wrong. Right. Yeah. There's never a movie in Hollywood that it's like (laughs) where somebody is going, yeah, I don't really think about sex very often or I'm not really in the mood or like it just doesn't it doesn't happen. It's always presented as mutual excitement. Like both Mm -hmm. people are trying to step on the gas at the same time. Who can go faster? And for somebody that has initiating desire, which I feel like that, it can be frustrating because you think that's all I've ever thought. Uh-huh. That's all I've ever thought about sex. That's all you've ever known. That's all I've and ever so known. And so it just seems weird right. that's, that there's this whole different direction where one of the ways that I can put it is desire kind of happens in the reverse order, right? So the, the receptive desire individual, it often takes something external to prompt them to, to think about it. So their spouse may come in and say, hey, you know, it's been a couple of days. I'd really like to be with you. Could we be together tonight? Oh, okay. Let me try that thought on for size. You know, if I get these tasks done, I think I could have the internal bandwidth to do it. And they're making an intentional decision to move forward with it. That is a part of the receptive desire. And by now, often the initiating desire is trying to figure out what's going on. You know, am I being rejected? Why haven't you been thinking about it? But if they allow that to go, the receptive desire person can choose to move forward with it. And they choose to engage in in sexual play. Uh, they may be kissing and, and hugging and holding, and there may be some light petting that's going on. And in that process, they're self-evaluating what this feels like. Oh, I'm enjoying this. You know, I'm with my spouse. I'm with my husband or I'm with my wife, and this feels good. And, oh, my body's feeling good. I like that I'm getting aroused here and doing this with my spouse. And now, sometimes five to ten minutes into the sexual act, the receptive desire person is finally feeling desire. And feeling to some degree what the, their spouse may have been feeling from right. Well, right. way before they ever started. One, one husband said, you know, it takes us five to ten minutes into sex before she looks and says, why don't we do this more often? This is great. <laughs> and, and he's like, I'm thinking, yes, finally she's learned. And he said, the next morning I roll over and go, it's more often. And she's like, no, we just did it last night. I'm <laughs> and I'm so confused. That's because she's not aroused and she's not aware of the arousal. And so the desire's not on. Yeah. And the, the same thing happens often for older men. There are a significant number of men that experience a receptive desire, but more so as we get older, that's more the pattern as well. So this happens for both males and females. And it is that awareness, the arousal happens before the desire happens. So we have to almost choose to move forward with it, and then it can kick in. So you you talked about two out of the three. You mentioned there were three, initiating desire. It's like that car is in drive. It's always in the back of your mind, you know? (laughs) And it's it's like I remember in high school, it's like that was for me, you know, 16, 17 years old. There was nothing that even had to prompt me to think about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't changed a ton, although we're going to get to what makes changes for initiating desire, if it ever changes. Receptive desire, you have to have something before. Something has to yes. add there, energy to the process. There needs to be a, a choice to move forward and a sense of arousal and an awareness, a positive evaluation of that arousal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the car is in neutral. What's the third one? 
The third one is um, a resistant uh, desire, sometimes called a reverse desire. Um, and for this one, if we stick with the car analogy, I think of it as somebody who's um, in park or they may be in neutral, but the parking brake is on. It's easy to think of the resistant desires just wrong as bad, and that is not true. Um, there are times that a resistant desire may be healthy or may just be an is. Uh, sometimes there may be a medicine involvement. There are other times that we move into relational issues and the relationship is just not safe enough. Uh, you know, sex is designed to be something that is very intimate and the relationship may just have a high level of contempt. Uh, there may be other things that have threatened the safety boundaries like pornography or infidelity or, or something that has made it unsafe to be that open and vulnerable. Sometimes we don't know why the parking brake is on, maybe past trauma. Yeah, that's a resistant type of desire where the parking brake is on. Yeah. We need to figure out why it's there. It's there for a reason, just telling somebody to get rid of it, not a good plan. Mm. Uh, we want to figure out why the parking brake is on. It may be important. Now, and just to give some context, because I know everybody is listening to this and going, okay, I'm trying to wrap my brain around the fact that it's not just the Hollywood way. And so let's give some numbers. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm wondering, okay, who's initiating? Who's receptive? Who's resistant? Well, and starting with resistance, since you were just doing that, that's a very small percentage of people. It's in in our survey, in one of the big surveys that we did, which was of matched pair couples. So we knew who was married to who Mm -hmm. in this big anonymous survey. It was 3% of women and 4% of men. So it's a pretty small number. So, But the initiating and receptive, which are the two big buckets, actually it's pretty interesting. 24% of women were initiating. Okay. Interesting, huh? And Mm -hmm. 59% of men. And if you look at the receptive, 73% of women are receptive, which of course is probably not a surprise Mm -hmm. to many of the people listening. And 38% of men are receptive, trending towards the older men, but not entirely. There's mm-hmm. plenty of men who right. they're that's just their pattern. Which you, I mean, that's not what people joke about at marriage conferences. It's no. It's almost <laughs> always the jokes are always geared towards well, men always want to have sex and women don't. You know, it, it takes them longer for them to get in the mood. Which is only partially accurate. It's not that they don't want to. It's that there's a different pathway for them to get there, mm-hmm. and and we're not reflecting that. Um, and the same for the older men. Now, one of the most common questions I get. Around these types is, is it always this way? Are you always initiating desire? Right. Are you always receptive desire? And the answer is definitely not. It can definitely change over age. It can change over stage of life. You know, that a young woman who's looking forward to get pregnant, often she really reflects a strong initiating type of desire. And three kids in, the receptive desire is fully <laughs> entrenched, you know, because her body's in a totally different place. Her mind's in a different place. So these aren't just this is who you are. They do shift. And part of the challenge is couples being aware of here's who I am right now and talking about that with their spouse. One of the things that I found really interesting as as part of this research, we found people actually were identifying with like this initiating receptive thing. And yet there's actually two different ways of looking at it, Um, which is you may have the feeling of like the Hollywood feeling of Mm -hmm. desire. Like I see my spouse and I think, ooh, right. And I have the feeling to go for it. But you may actually take on the receptive role 
We heard this a mm-hmm. lot from husbands who didn't want to pressure their wives and who mm-hmm. didn't want to feel rejected. And it was there's so much of their kind of emotions and their identity wrapped up in this, which we'll talk about in another episode and kind of the emotions behind it, that they would sort of step back and wait for their right. for their wife to be the yeah. one to initiate. Mm-hmm. Or and the same thing would happen with initiating wives who they have that feeling of desire, but they're taking a step back. And so there's actually also a slight difference sometimes in the roles mm-hmm. that people take on where yep. I'm not going to put my heart out there. <laughs> I want to make sure that, you know, you're feeling this. So it's kind of putting you in that role. And sometimes that is helpful. But one of the things Dr. Mike told us early on is that there can be something a little unhealthy in there where somebody's waiting because they don't want to get their heart hurt and they're pulling back. And and that's the invitation is to challenge what's going on for us. If somebody identifies themselves as a receptive spouse, if that's how their their body and their pattern works, the initiating spouse is often looking going, why don't you initiate sex more? You know, I want you to initiate sex more. But that's not how they think. That's not how they work. It's kind of like, why don't you like Mexican food? <laughs> yeah. Like, you should like Mexican food. I love Mexican food. Ne- like, why wouldn't you love it? You never asked me to go out for Mexican. Well, because I never think about it because I don't like it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this isn't an I don't like. It's it's just not there. Right. And why don't you in- invite it more? And so the receptive spouse in uh, different research, not for this, for my dissertation, I took just those that were receptive spouses, and I asked them, we can't come up with a good biblical term for horny, so I just use horny. Um, (laughs) Is it not in the message translation? I'm I'm sure it's there somewhere. You know, that that kind of initiating desire, if you experience it, but you're more of the receptive, typically, would you initiate with your spouse? And a quarter of the receptive desire spouses said, even if I felt it, I would never initiate. Mm. That's not who I am. And that that shifts into that role that, that Shanti's talking about. If I experience that receptive desire, that's how my body works. It doesn't feel right for me to initiate. Others, about two-thirds of them said, well, sometimes I might. And a small number of them said, no, I always will. And versus the initiating, you know, they're saying, no, I generally will, except, like Shanti's saying, in those relationships where doing so seems to cause harm, or I've been rejected enough times that now I'm kind of afraid I'm going to get burned, so I'm pulling back. And the role I've taken on is more I'm waiting and I'm yeah. receptive. Yeah. And it's important to tease those out for the, the couple and, and what's going on. So if I'm listening, I'm, I'm asking a couple of questions. One, is there a test I can take to find out if I'm initiating <laughs> receptive or do I just know? Like, is there an Enneagram version of this that I can I can take? Not yet, but that's a great idea. Yeah. We're working on that. We're working on that. Yep. So you guys will get that. But it, seriously, how would I, because I want to know not only what my type is, but more importantly, what is my spouse's type? The, the easiest way is just, you know, as you listen to the descriptors, what seems to feel more like you. You know, I tend to think about sex and then pursue it is the initiating type of desire. So we toss out the question, I begin to desire sex after I've decided to engage sexually and begin to be aroused. So I've said yes, I'm starting to get aroused, and now the desire is showing up. Is that how it works for you? And husbands said rarely. Hmm. That's not how it works for them very often. But the most common answer from wives was usually 
that's usually how it happens for me. And as Shanti said, 73% of, of these wives are those receptive kind of individuals. So they're the ones that are saying, I start to get aroused and then I want it. If you're resonating with it, saying, yeah, that sounds like me, then you're going to be more the receptive type of an individual. If you're saying, no, you know, I kind of avoid those situations and I dread my spouse asking, I dread that look in their eye that tells me that they're hungry for sex. And I try to start little arguments if I know they're going to be interested to keep it shut down. That would put you in the resistance side. Okay. Um, the parking brakes on and we just need to figure out why. Yeah. And to clarify, because I hear women when we talk about this, they misunderstand or sometimes men too, mm-hmm. but misunderstand it. it. What we're talking about with resistant is dread, fear. Yeah. Not just, I'm just not interested, I'm tired, <laughs> right. right? Like, mm-hmm. those are two very different things. Like, uh-huh. not interested, tired, that can be receptive. Mm-hmm. But that dread, fear, I try to totally do everything I can to run away from it. Yeah. Those are two different things. Right. right. So what are the chances, if I'm married, that I'm married to somebody that's my exact type? Well, we know the answer to that question. <laughs> we asked. Uh-huh. Because that's what everybody's wanting to know. It's like, I, certainly I would be, I mean, when I got married, what are the chances that I get married to somebody that's in my exact type? Well, here's the thing that to me was by far the most fascinating piece of the puzzle with this is that if you look at the when the feeling of desire arrives, not the roles you take on, but the feeling, 90% of people are not in the Hollywood marriage. Mm. 90% of people do not have both the husband and the wife be initiating. Only 10% of the population, 90% are not that Hollywood idea that we think should be 100%. Like everybody thinks. Because that's what's presented. Because that's what's presented. Where both 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 spouses are initiating. Right. So only 10% of people are in that category. Now, two-thirds of people are not married to somebody like them. That's sort of the way that the numbers break down, a little bit less than two-thirds, but basically two-thirds of people. So chances are you're married to somebody different than you. Very much so. And that's where the confusion sets in because my way, of course, is probably right. And why aren't you like (laughs) me? There's something clearly wrong with you. And if you love me, if you love me, you you would would do what I want. Right. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And rather than if I love you, I'm going to discover who you are there and you figure out how to, to care for and to serve and to draw you into this is a different stance. It is a life-giving thing once people recognize that it's not just that my spouse isn't interested. So let's go back to that question from the very beginning, right? Why isn't my spouse interested? Well, actually, they are interested in most cases. It's just you have a different definition of interested. Their interest arrives into the sexual play. Their interest arrives later at a different time than your interest. And so you can kind of take your ego out of it. Like you can take Mm -hmm. the I'm feeling rejected because my spouse just isn't quote unquote interested. Well, actually, they have been designed with a different physiology than you. So it might be a better question. Why aren't they interested at the same time? And, and when you take that, that takes that out of that, that takes, takes the out emotion of out of it. Or what does it take for us to both be there at the same time? Mm-hmm. Or even better, I'm the initiating desire, so I've been thinking about it. What does it take to draw my spouse into that space? 
knowing that it may be five to ten minutes. You know, an example that I use, especially in Christian audiences, is ask, you know, how many of you have devotions every day? And I'll get, you know, a pretty decent number of people say, well, yeah, I do. And that's good. That's a good discipline for us. And how many of you ever wake up and think, oh, I just don't have the time or the energy for it today? And yet you choose to anyways out of discipline because you know it's good for you. You know it's right. And really it's who you want to be. What happens five to ten minutes into your devotions? It's like, wow, I'm so glad I did this. God met me, and yes, my day is starting well um, because I chose to, because it was right, and it's who I want to be. It's not that dissimilar for many people with receptive desire. I hardly have the energy for this. And it's not that I'm being pressured into it. If your initiating spouse is pressuring you into it, that's that's not good. And we'll Um, talk about that whole 1 Corinthians 7 passage that's been misused as this is need to be your duty. You just need to do this. That's not what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying. It's, okay, it has been a few days. The vision that we have for a couple is, and this is who I want to be. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to choose to because that's who I want to be, and that's good. And I allow my brain to focus in, to be present with the touch and with my spouse. And I'm thinking about how much I do love them and I enjoy this time together. And all of a sudden, my body is responding and then the desire is there. And wow, I'm glad I did. This is so much fun. Mm -hmm. That's what we're inviting. And as the initiating desire spouse, if I know that's their process, how do I be patient and woo them into it and draw them into it? To where I look over and say, hey, so you look really cute. Um, can we be together? And they go, eh, I'm not sure. I don't have a lot of energy and I got a lot to do yet this evening. Rather than getting hurt and bent out of shape or punishing or blaming or critical or anything that's going to destroy the, the process, I lean back and I think internally challenge accepted. I will help to draw you into this. I'll make the environment such that it's easy for you to step into it because I know, I know us. Five minutes into this, you're going to be so into it and glad you did. But that's a different kind of a mindset than many couples have when they don't understand the initiating receptive difference. There's another piece of the puzzle that is actually helpful for a percentage of the population, not necessarily everybody. And that is building what we call anticipation time. Into the process because somebody who's initiating desire, they don't need anticipation time because they're always anticipating, right? The person with receptive desire often just isn't thinking about it. And so if you can do something, if you are the initiating spouse, and let's just say that you're the wife who's the initiating desire. And so you're the wife and you know that your husband is receptive and you have, you know, you got this on your mind and you want to make sure that he has it on his mind. You can like flirt with him in the morning and be like, you know, if we get all the chores done, if you get all those DIY projects done, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd love to be together later. And he's thinking about it in a way that he may not have been thinking about it. Before And that gives the anticipation of looking forward to it so that there isn't that as much of that gap. That one thing of adding anticipation time into the mix, Mm -hmm. it helps in so many cases. Not all, but so many cases. And it really goes back to how can the initiating type be more of a wooer? And I, and I think Correct. that you did that naturally when you were dating. Something happens when you get married. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, I shouldn't have to do that anymore. That's true. But also when we're dating, 
it is more common that both will show an initiating type of desire. Mm. And we see typically for women two to three years into marriage or after the first child, they switch from an initiating type of desire into receptive type of desire. Um, we argue a bit about it in the sex therapy field, but most tend to believe that that is pretty normal for women. Mm. So that early dating, wait, you lied to me. No, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they really, really didn't. That's where their body was at that point. And their body shifted um, after marriage. And we're, like, like you said before, this is about a sexual journey. I'm on a journey Correct. with someone. And I'm going to have to love them in different ways throughout different seasons of marriage, throughout different experiences with kids, different medical things that might mm-hmm. go on. And so it's how do I die to myself to love right. the type that God has put me with? To die to self and be curious about, to understand. So to seek to know rather than to man to be. You know, when I demand that my spouse be something, that's probably not going to be helpful for marriage. Right. When I step back and I go, okay, I know you love me and you wanted to do this. Something's in the way. And I'm going to be a good student of you and help to draw you into that space. From a completely practical standpoint. There we go. <laughs> because, because one of the things that we've seen over the years and that Dr. Mike sees all the time is that you can have all the right intentions and yet not necessarily be taking some of the steps that will actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so we hear all the time from husbands, for example, stereotypically, who are like, but I've gone to the marriage conferences with my wife and I'm pursuing her and I'm, you know, showing up as somebody who like when we were dating and I'm telling her how much I love her and how beautiful she is to me and she's still not interested in sex what do I do and I'm like just because you're helping with the chores and being amazing she's not thinking about sex you have to get her thinking about it that again that anticipation time for example earlier in the day or just be okay with the fact that she's going to decide to get sexually engaged with you and then start feeling desire a few minutes later yeah Okay, so, you know, as I think about those three types, whether I'm an initiator, whether I'm receptive, knowing that chances are I'm married to somebody different than me Mm -hmm. and maybe resistant, is there a place I can go to get some quick tips, some quick help about how I can continue to love my spouse better? Definitely. We've laid a lot of that out in the book. And then the uh, secretsofsexandmarriage.com, the website, we will have some resources there as well, some articles and links to getting help, you know, if you're uh, resistant Uh, that can be tough to figure out what's going on and and you'll probably need some help in figuring it out. (laughs) And we know there's a lot of other reasons why my spouse may not be interested in sex that that don't have anything to do with desire (laughs) type. And so we're going to start talking about more of those in the episodes. It could be their level. It could be off. It could be Mm -hmm. some pain or some hurt from the past. And we're going to dig into more of those. We also have a lot of bonus material where we ask Dr. Mike very specific questions (laughs) and you can find that down below in our podcast series. We want to provide as much help as we can because our goal really is how do we help you become more connected so that your intimacy and your sexual intimacy could be more rich. So I think a lot of couples are asking, what do I do with this episode? How can I move towards more connectedness when it comes to sexual intimacy? And I think the answer has to be sit down and talk about it and explore one another. Like Dr. Mike said, 
figure out what is your pattern. Do you tend to have to make the decision first and then you start feeling it later? And if you're the initiating person hearing your spouse talk about it, again, don't take that personally. Like there's something wrong with you now. Hopefully that can free you. So one of the things that Dr. Mike always says is that in order to have a good conversation about this, you need to have sort of reasonable communication skills. If this is going to be triggering, if this is going to be hard for you to have a conversation about without somebody getting upset, without somebody checking out, well, maybe there's some communication skills you can work on Mm -hmm. just in general in your marriage, not just on this topic, and then come back together again and talk about it. Mm -hmm. Because it's difficult, you don't avoid it. But if it's going to cause damage than getting some assistance, getting some help. Right, exactly. we would suggest, I mean, for the whole book, honestly, one of the big to-dos that we suggest to people is that they read the book together. So if this seems to you like, oh my goodness, we are in that two-thirds where we are different patterns, read this chapter together and use it as a starting point to talk about it. I think what you'll discover, it's kind of like what I've discovered anytime that I read a, a great book that's giving me good advice, it's practical, that we know is saturated with the truth of, of the gospel, there's a sense of I'm, I'm more safe to have the conversation. Yeah. You're giving me language that I wouldn't normally use. You're uh, giving me a certain type that now I can identify with and go, oh, that's probably why I think that way. And that's, and that's okay. And so I think for the couple to come together, and again, our goal is for you to be more connected in this area, to rediscover that benefit that God has for you in sexual intimacy. If you want more information about how you can continue to pursue oneness together, you might want to check out familylife.com slash learn. We've got a great collection of e-courses, not just about intimacy, but we have stuff on how you can love like you mean it, well-blended, financial freedom, just a lot of different information and great courses at your fingertips where you can continue to grow together and pursue the relationships that matter most.